everyone, and welcome to episode two of Death Space Filling the Void. I'm Patrick Jones, recording from Brooklyn, New York, and now we're into it. There's a lot of nerves and anxiety that comes with releasing the first episode of a podcast, but this is episode two. We're rolling now. I'm very excited for this episode because I interviewed Dr. Christina Pirpali Parker, who is a clinical psychologist and postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. Christina is very thorough and a very easy interview because she brings so much information and enthusiasm, and she had so many enlightening things to say. But before we get to that interview, I wanted to mention that today's episode is brought to you by The Cardist. A card delivers joy and connection, but it's hard to muster that positive energy in this pandemic. Introducing a writing specialist for the message inside your greeting cards. The Cardist Studio creates your message, writes it in the card, and mails it for you. All you have to do is pick the card and tell why you're sending it. No errands, no emotional exercise. For a message from your heart, but not your hands. Sit back and just enjoy your relationships. TheCardistStudio.com, thoughtful, just got easy. And you can use the promo code DEATHPOD for 10% off all orders. Today's episode is also brought to you by My Software Tutor. Are your Excel skills optimized for your current job? Do you know the basics but would like to learn more? My Software Tutor offers three levels of real-time Zoom-based courses with a live instructor. They all deliver practical, functional business skills in a friendly, supportive environment. These courses will increase your marketability whether you're an employee, job seeker, consultant, or contractor. Register at MySoftwareTutor.com and use promo code POD20 to save 20% off all registrations. I'd also like to mention to please check the show out on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please remember to review and leave a positive rating. I'd also like to mention I have another podcast called That Gives Me Anxiety. It's a show about the things that scare us and why they may not be so scary after all. All right, I think we're ready to talk to Dr. Pierpali Parker. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy. Okay, looks like we're good. Are you uh, ready? Do you have water? Do you need anything else? I've got my coffee. Yep. I, there I'm we go. <laughs> I'm only allowed to have like 200 milligrams of coffee a day, which itself feels like a kind of death. Um, because <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm sure when you rely on it so much, I have like three or four cups a day, you know, I can yeah. imagine that is yeah. and a big keep change. This, yes. And keep this in, I think, because a caffeine can really, really, of course, as a stimulant amp up whatever anxiety we feel at baseline, especially for people with panic disorder. And as we'll talk about, one could make the argument that at the root of panic attacks and panic disorder is this preoccupation with death and illness. So um, one practical strategy for managing <laughs> panic and anxiety, and maybe uh, even a part of the death component is to really reduce your caffeine intake, particularly because it can 
you know, cause some palpitations and many people think that they're experiencing a heart attack and that can perpetuate a panic attack. So anyway. Absolutely. And this is why I love speaking with you because <laughs> I haven't even introduced you and, and you're already giving us facts that can help us. Excellent. But to introduce you properly, this is Dr. Christina Pierpaoli, who is a clinical psychologist. And, yep. and we're going to talk a little bit about fear of death. Yeah, or fanatophobia, as, as coined by Dr. Sigmund Freud. Of course, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and, and your research. I'm Dr. Christina Pierpaoli Parker, a psychologist who specializes in aging and health. I currently work at the University of Alabama, where I've helped to develop, uh, implement, and scale the Integrated Behavioral Medicine Service, which provides co-located psychiatric services to people presenting with comorbid physical health conditions like insomnia, metabolic syndrome, uh, generalized anxiety, depression, non-adherence issues. But globally, I'd say that my line of research really explores the intersection of psychological and physical health um, in adulthood and into later life. And that line of research started primarily at the intersection of HIV and aging alongside my mentor, Dr. Charles Emlett, who really wanted to explore the lived experiences of older adults living with HIV disease, which as we know at one point was a terminal illness, right? It was yeah. a death sentence. If you got diagnosed with HIV in the you know, 80s or 90s, right? And, and at one point we couldn't even characterize you know, the, the clinical presentation. We didn't even have a, a lexicon for it, but that was a death sentence. And so the question, orienting that research is and was how can people age successfully with HIV now that we've uh, developed clinical interventions and therapeutics that permit people to live longer and healthier lives with a once historically terminal illness. And from there, I really developed an interest in understanding the intersection of uh, psychological and physical health and using behavioral interventions as a way of optimizing physical health and psychological health outcomes among older adults. But it's through this line of research that I developed a sensitivity to older adults in particular and more germane to this conversation, the relevance of death salience and the centrality of death, not only in psychopathology, but also in the way in which we live our lives. And the interesting thing about death is that its centrality can either be energizing or it can be absolutely devastating. In other words, we can use death as a way of celebrating our present experience, really savoring every single thing that happens to us, recognizing the, the finiteness of the time that we have, um, or it can be the thing that stymies, you know, living a life fully. And so as part of my clinical training and my, my doctoral program in clinical psychology, I provided a lot of clinical care in palliative spaces and have worked with patients and caregivers to help manage end-of-life care issues and decision-making, as well as to prepare for and grieve the loss of loved ones. Of course, yeah, that's all. There's so much to unpack with that. But my first question, based on what you just said, is, you know, we have these two roads 
you know, death could make us feel like we have to jump out of planes and, and go to restaurants and, and try new things and, and all these beautiful things. Or it could be close the door, turn off the lights, you know, child's pose. Do we have a choice in that matter? Are we predisposed to one or the other? Mm-hmm. I think it's an excellent question. And I think it's it's probably not as simple as a binary yes or no question. Mm-hmm. I think the, the the answer is we have necessarily, evolutionarily, a sensitivity and preoccupation with death. And that is mm-hmm. protective. So for example, there are people who are born without the ability to perceive and sense pain. Okay, so these are people who go throughout their life, often much shorter lives for reasons that I'll explain in a moment, who don't feel pain. And that's problematic because pain tells us that there is something in our environment that we either need to avoid or manage, and it helps to modify and course correct behaviors that can increase our risk of harm. Right. And so people who are born without this ability to experience pain tend to die sooner than their healthier counterparts because they aren't able to collect and metabolize data about the environment that protects them. Mm -hmm. This is all to say that a hardwired preoccupation and awareness of death has a function and that function, how that function gets expressed, whether that's adaptively, so using it to nourish and energize your life, or maladaptively to sort of cloister you away from life, then depends on a host of other biopsychosocial factors. In other words, depends on variables related to culture, related to age, related to physical health, related to the meaning you assign to death, related to the level of meaning and purpose you have in your life. All of these variables interact in probably synergistic and reciprocal ways that may increase or decrease your sensitivity to death anxiety. Mm -hmm. So sad to think of somebody not, you know, cherishing the time that they have because of just being overwhelmed with the anxiety of, of what will be. Yeah. And one interesting thing, so there's one fairly consistent finding in the death literature and research about the protective factor of age. In other words, generally, and of course there are always, you know, individual differences, but generally on average, older people tend to fear death less. Hmm. And yeah, well, you know, why, why is that the case? And there are a host of reasons for this. You know, one is that the awareness, as we've discussed, of death itself can create the savoring experience. And in the psychological literature, this is called socio-emotional selectivity theory, coined by Dr. Laura Karstensen at Stanford University. And it's actually a theory that helps to explain emotion regulation in in later life, a a theory that helps to explain why older adults, let's say, on average are happier (laughs) and better able to manage their anxiety. And it posits that as our time horizons decrease, as we get closer to death, we start to prioritize more emotionally 
versus semantically meaningful experiences. Said differently, we place a larger premium on emotionally and psychologically edifying experiences like interpersonal relationships and travel and spending time with grandchildren than we are about getting the next big promotion, getting 10,000 Twitter followers, <laughs> getting, you know, making a million dollars, buying a Porsche. So part of the reason why older adults tend to fear death less is because they are aware of their decreasing time horizons. And neurologically, neuropsychologically, psychologically, there is some mechanism in place that helps them to focus on things that are more emotionally meaningful. But there might be other factors at play here. Older adults, for example, for better or for worse, tend to have more exposure to death. They see it more often. Mm. Their, their, their social networks prune or get smaller as a consequence of death. And so that has two consequences. One, it, ha it habituates them to death. It exposes them to death at a rate that their younger counterparts don't necessarily experience. And number two, it decreases their social network. And so the cost of death socially for them, one could argue, feels less expensive because there's less to miss out on. <laughs> so because yeah. everyone, so they've, because they've lost, you know, the people that matter most to them. Right. So it's this combination of emotion regulation. So sort of the wisdom and, and comfort that comes with age, but it also in part has to do with habituation and exposure to death, as well as this reduced social cost of death. All right. I mean, that is, First off, like, it's a great thing, right? You know, I mean, it, it would be very difficult to watch, you know, your grandmother, your grandparents just stress every day. I mean, oh, that, that sounds so heartbreaking. Yeah. But also, in a less clinical sense, when you hear someone turning 30, 40, whatever it is, <laughs> you know, they'll say, you know what, this decade is great because I've stopped caring. I've set aside all the, all the bullshit. And... Well, and, and right, in other words, and I, and I think this is a gross essentialization of socio-emotional selectivity <laughs> theory, but you just have fewer fucks to give. Yeah, there as, you go. As you get older. And I think that's wonderful. And one of the benefits is, and again, this isn't always the case. I don't want to romanticize death and aging because people do very significantly. But if we, look at, if we look at it on the average, generally age itself is a protective factor against death anxiety. And so one practical implication is, oh, well, if you're feeling anxious about death, that makes sense. But you give it some time, you, you know, you'll probably... Uh, you'll <laughs> Just wait it out, yeah. Just wait okay. it out. It all, it all ends the same way for everyone anyway. <laughs> right, spoiler, spoiler alert. Spoiler yeah. alert, you're going to die. <laughs> I also, uh, I mean, I don't know if you have any plans to write a book, but the zero fucks given uh, death anxiety book is uh, yeah. certainly something I would read. Yeah, I am planning to write a book of, about aging and a millennial's perspective on it. And maybe that chapter will be called Zero Fucks Given and I will shout you out for yeah, sure. Yeah, there you go. I think that would be a lot of fun and, and certainly a lot of information. Yes. Let's go back to, do all, all creatures innately have this fear of death mm -hmm, mm -hmm. built in? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think it's important to pause and differentiate and operationalize what we mean when we say fear of death, because fear 
is a higher order emotional experience. It is a subjective experience of uncertainty and dread. Mm-hmm. Fear and awareness, a consciousness of death, are two very different things. You can be aware of something and not fearful of it, but you can't have the opposite. And so this question of are all creatures fearful of death remains unclear. Certainly humans are, and certainly primates and other big-brained animals like whales and dolphins make reasonable efforts, as, as well as not big creatures, make reasonable efforts to avoid death and harm. But the question of if that is motivated by fear versus this basic primordial desire to survive, to propagate the species, remains a much larger and frankly, uh, more complicated question. Right. The reason fear exists from a human perspective is because we have the software and neurological infrastructure to experience emotion which lives throughout, it's a diffuse experience, emotion and subjective experience and consciousness. But in terms of these basic primordial feelings of fear and escape and avoidance, these live in our limbic system, which lives in our midbrain. We can partition the brain into three you know, gross sections. We've got the hindbrain, which is the back of our brain, where we have all of these basic processes of respiration and walking. And then we have the, the midbrain, which contains all sorts of of structures, but um, most germane to our conversation, the limbic system, which houses the hippocampus. It's Greek for um, seahorse because they look like little seahorses. And the amygdala, which comprises the limbic system where our emotions live. The good ones, the bad ones, the neutral ones. That's our emotion processing center. And then we have the frontal lobe. I often describe this as the newest software update to our brain. (laughs) (laughs) The the, the frontal lobe provides the, the tools that we need as humans to be aware, to execute, to plan, to abstract, and to have personality. We believe that part of the personality lives in the frontal lobe. So it's this unique tension between the limbic system, the midbrain, and the frontal lobe that may create this construct of fear. In other words, among other species who may just have the software of the emotional brain, but not the logical brain, fear doesn't really exist because they're not there isn't this higher order understanding of implication, right? Mm -hmm. There isn't this higher order understanding of, well, if, you know, that, that, that other cell or that other, you know, living thing eats me, I die and therefore I'm done forever. It's, oh, like, and then I can't, I can't reproduce. So Mm -hmm. it's this unique tension that is unique to humans and primates and other big brain animals between the limbic system and the frontal lobe that may create this subjective experience of fear because we understand the implication of death in a way that perhaps other species don't. We understand that it's irreversible. We understand that it's final. We understand that it's causal. And we understand that it's unpredictable. 
so that's another layer of complexity added. It's not only this tension between the limbic system and the frontal lobe, it is this tension that I think Heidegger, you know, very well illustrated between recognizing not only the, the inevitability of death, but also the unpredictability of it. So not right. only this, is this thing going to happen, you ain't never going to know when it's going to happen. Now, <laughs> we can, so it's like a double, it's like a double shit sandwich. So, so, uh, you know, and we can probably predict with a reasonable amount of confidence that you and I, God willing, are not going to die right now because we're healthy overall and the likelihood of some plane crashing into your apartment or this building is very low. But that is the other part of this. It's the tensions psychologically, but also the, the inherent dynamics of both the inevitability and the unpredictability of death. So getting back to your question, do other creatures fear death? For those reasons, unclear, but certainly all creatures have an inbuilt biological predisposition to avoid expiring. Mm-hmm in order to preserve and propagate, you know, the, the, the posterity. And related to this question is this idea that other species can grieve and demonstrate grief processes. So there's someone who was once quoted as saying that humans don't own love and grief. In other words, these experiences of love and grief may appear in other life forms, uh, particularly those big-brained animals that we've talked about. Um, yeah, I remember seeing that elephants and, and gorillas. And yeah, like so, have. right. So again, because we can't ask an elephant, are, <laughs> are you feeling fear today? Are you feeling fear of death today? We have to observe behavior, right? right? And we observe behavior in humans all the time, but because there's no verbal communication possible among other non-human species, we have to observe behavior. And behaviorally, uh, we, we observe primates, elephants, giraffes, dolphins, whales withdrawing after the death of someone in their group, eating less, hmm. mate, mating less, sleeping more, sleeping less. And generally, again, this is probably too essentializing and I'm you know, I'm not a veterinarian, I'm not a, a zoologist, but typically the more social the species, the more likely they are to behave in a manner that is described as grief. Right. Um, so for example, in like 2018, 2018, I think it was, there was like an orca um, that died off the coast of Vancouver and its mother, kept the corpse for 17 days. There were like pictures. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah. So, you know, again, we can't interview Orca and say, what were you thinking? But we can look at that behavior and say, oh my gosh, is that a grief process? So even though that behavior doesn't necessarily answer this question of do Orcas fear death, it may answer the question of can other non-human species have a meaningful awareness of their mortality mm -hmm. and grieve that. Another example, I think, was a female chimp in Zambia named Noel <laughs> attempted to, to clean the teeth of her, of her dead son, Thomas. And many experts witnessed this and dubbed it as a, as a, as a mourning ritual. 
um, morning is an M O U R N, not like yeah. morning routine. <laughs> um, the teeth. <laughs> and then another really interesting example of of a grief process among non, uh, other non-human species is what you said earlier: uh, elephants who are famed for not only mourning but for creating these memorials of mm-hmm. the dead where they stock the bones of their of their loved ones and kind of line rocks around it and are seen touching the bones and rocking back and forth in a way that resembles a vigil so again behaviorally this suite of examples points to the possibility of an awareness of a, a human like awareness of of death in non-human species which presupposes that other forms of life can have a meaningful relationship with the implications of death whether that translates into fear remains unclear but this question of do other forms of life have a motivation to prevent death yes of course but but the extent to which that represents just a basic primordial evolutionary motivation versus a more meaningful implications-based fear to be determined. Well, you know, first of all, I think that's just, it's really beautiful to think. I, I, it, it's kind of an odd thing, but I wish that for animals. You wish that like we're not yes, exclusively, sure. you know, grieving. It, it, it adds to the, the value of their lives, right? That they're, they're getting some richness in, in, in their experience. Yeah, and also, you know, points to this idea that we share this earth space with other creatures that feel. Right. That, that makes me feel, you know, we, we have, <laughs> there are humans everywhere, and that's great, but like, it in some way makes me feel like less lonely, and it makes me feel like more ethically and morally responsible for practice care yeah. and compassion for everything right and and again the answer is the answer might be that everything fears death we just don't have sensitive technologies and sciences and questions with which to detect and answer that right so i think as as a as a doctor, one thing you get trained is in this this ethical principle of, you know, non-maleficence, first do no harm. And so I think one global application of that is to just live your life assuming that all things can feel pain. Yeah, I think that is, yeah. I like the, the message of that being, preaching, being gentle because yes, everything is precious. Gentle. Yes, everything is precious and can serve you in some way. Like, you know, I'm drinking coffee out of the styrofoam cup and, you know, probably the styrofoam cup can't, I probably can't feel pain, but I can still be gentle with it and I can place it down gently and like thank it for, for serving me. Yeah, exactly. Um, other, other people may observe that behavior and, and that yes. rubs off in, in other ways. Modeling, but also more importantly, one of the, we think that one of the antidotes to managing death anxiety is having a sense of connection and meaning and purpose. And so one way that you can have a, cultivate a sense of meaning and purpose and connection 
is through practicing gratitude, is through thanking everyone and everything that enters into your life. So a more practical application of that quasi-psychotic cup bit is to say (laughs) that when you can approach things from a posturing of gratitude, you can feel more connected. And when you can feel more connected, you can feel more substantial and you can feel more like things have more meaning and purpose. And when you have an increased sense of meaning and purpose, even through the daily slog and sufferings of life, you can in some way feel less anxious about, about death. Absolutely. It, it feels like it goes back to what you were saying, where if you have purpose or, or meaning, it can quiet, you know. Yes. I, I don't know what I'm saying. It's quieting, but it, well, it quiets like the noise. Yes, because, you know, to the extent that death means the end, if you live every day to the best of your ability, according to your values and what matters most to you, you can look at death and say, Yes, it is the end, but up until the end, I did what was important and meaningful to me. Mm. I didn't miss out because I, I tried to conduct my life according to a set of principles and beliefs and convictions that I truly and deeply believed. And so it feels like you don't have as much un- unfinished business. Right. Yeah, that's so beautiful. I mean, death is there for all of us, but standing in its face and and holding on your convictions is is powerful and beautiful. Yeah, and it's really hard. It's really difficult to know, you know, what those are for you. And that's, that's where, you know, I think working with people who can help to ask and work through those questions with you can add significant value to your life, whether, you know, that is someone in your in your church or you know religious organization whether it's a spiritual spiritual or religious leader or you know if if that's a a a clinical psychologist who can work with you to help you manage some some death anxiety or the clinical manifestations of that which can sometimes come out in you know depression and panic and ocd and certain health anxieties or somatoform disorder, um, formerly, you know, known as hypochondriasis, where you present with a lot of concerns about having some, you know, unlikely physical condition. I want to go back for a second and talk about where fear comes from in the brain. I'll, I'll share that. I don't know why I thought this, but I always thought a fear of death was in, in the hippocampus, which may be incorrect, with like, the information that tells your heart to beat and, and for your lungs to expand. I just thought it was like so innately baked into our brains that I, I guess I was a little bit surprised you mm-hmm. describing the relationship between the frontal lobe and, and the midbrain. You know, obviously I want your you to correct that misconception, but also if you, if you can expand a little bit more about fear in the brain and, sure. and where it lives. Sure, sure. So you're, you're correct in that the hip, like the hippocampus certainly plays a role in maintaining in maintaining fear 
the hippocampus lives in the, the midbrain, lives in the middle of the brain next to the amygdala. And as I've mentioned, that combination of the amygdala, so our emotion center and our, our hippocampi, we technically have two, uh, that comprises our limbic system. And that limbic system plays a major role in our experiences of, of fear and anxiety and avoidance. The hindbrain, that's the, that's the back of the brain closest to the brainstem. That is the most basic part. And I say basic, and I don't mean in that it lacks complexity because it's very complex. Most basic in terms of functioning. So the hindbrain governs our basic functions like respiration and walking and balance. Mm-hmm. To get morbid, not the, you know, as if we haven't already been morbid, but (laughs) (laughs) any damage to that part of your brain is almost always fatal or extremely, extremely debilitating, right? Paralysis and and inability to walk and things like that. So, and, and this isn't to say that these parts of the brain don't interact. It's not like these very clean and simple partitions between frontal lobe, hindbrain, midbrain, or, or another, or said differently, frontal lobe, you know, midbrain and hindbrain. It all works synergistically and reciprocally. But it, if, if we had to sort of grossly partition out the functions, I'd say that hindbrain really governs these basic processes. Midbrain is where we see um, the limbic system playing a very large role, though that's not the only uh, active, you know, symphony (laughs) in the midbrain, and then the frontal lobe. So when we feel fear, really what gets activated is that limbic system. And it works in a very simple way, right? If you were to get exposed to a spider and the spider bit you and you got really sick, you would A, want to remember that. And why would you want to remember that? Well, so you could avoid it. And so you could monitor your environment for other spiders so you don't get bit again. And the biting felt really scary and felt very uncomfortable. So that pairing of memory with emotional experience promotes learning to prevent future harm and danger. And at the core of preventing harm and danger is self-preservation. <laughs> yes, <Yeah. laughs> right. So this combination of, of learning and remembering and, of, and of, of emoting can create subjective experience, whether that's fear, whether that's joy, whether that's anxiety, whether that's anger. And this is the, this is the, the logic of conditioning. Conditioning is just learning, but for learning to happen, there need to be a few conditions available at present, right? There needs to be a a stimulus. There needs to be a response. There needs to be a salience. So for example, we are much more likely and it's easier to develop a fear of a snake or a spider than it is of a lollipop, right? Because there's Mm -hmm. a certain salience to the snake or to the, to the spider that doesn't exist in the lollipop. And so over, over iterations of pairing certain stimuli with certain responses, that's how we reliably elicit a, an emotion like fear. And so fear, once we have appraised a situation as dangerous, and our brain tells us this thing is dangerous, that initiates 
a cascade of physiological responses in the body. Mm -hmm. It's mediated primarily through the HPA axis, which governs that fight or flight response. So the, 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 the fight or flight response is known as the sympathetic nervous system. Mm -hmm. This is the, the, the response that goes online immediately when our brain perceives danger okay. and it's designed for very good and intuitive reason get out of harm's way right whether or not here's the tricky part right get out of harm's way whether that harm is real or imagined so in other words that fight or flight response is incredibly helpful if there's a tiger in front of you it's not so helpful if it goes on and you get an email from your boss your yeah. brain your brain for better or for worse doesn't really know the difference your emotional brain doesn't know the difference between a lion and a hostile work email that's where the frontal lobe comes in to help you differentiate the threat but that fight or flight system is all or nothing so it either goes on or it doesn't no matter what the stimulus is and so the same sort of physiological response that we would get to seeing a tiger so that release of cortisol and adrenaline and that increase in, you know, cardiovascular function, palpitations, you know, that's the same physiological response we would get if we were exposed to a real stressor. And we can see very easily how that, <laughs> that fear, of, um, that, that, you know, that, that response can be very, very maladaptive during everyday life, mm -hmm. um, particularly if you're preoccupied with death, because that's just a very emotionally and physiologically expensive response to something that isn't immediately threatening. And so over time, when you have a continued fear response to something, you condition yourself to avoid that thing, right? right. So if every time you saw a spider, you freaked out as it would make sense, well, then you might make reasonable efforts to avoid a spider given the option, but you might also then feel preoccupied about spiders, even when there aren't spiders around you. And it can be very much the same way with death. People who have a preoccupation with death are thinking about it all the time, even in the absence of very salient reminders. And that avoidance of death can perpetuate more anxiety because mm -hmm. you're not getting any, any feedback that you can you can think about this in a way that doesn't feel terrifying. So the more you avoid something, the more anxious you get. And the more anxious you get, the more you avoid that thing. And from a death anxiety perspective, that avoidance can look like numbing yourself with drugs or alcohol. It can be real, these preoccupations with fame and glory and legacy because you don't want to feel meaningless or small. It can play out in so many ways. Right. Or it can be as, as basic as someone talks about death or you get an invitation to a funeral and you have a panic attack. I mean, there are obvious and subtle ways in which this anxiety about death can, can manifest behaviorally. Yeah. Um, Oh, sorry, Patrick. Okay. Last thing I wanted to say. So, so basically the, the experience of fear really gets produced and generated in the limbic system. And that perpetuates a cascade of physiological responses in the body that helps you, you know, uh, start this, the sympathetic fight or flight process. And then after the, the threat sort of 
dissolves, that's when that parasympathetic response happens, that rest and digest system comes mm -hmm. into play. But the frontal lobe matters, it comes in when we are trying to manage and to discriminate between actual threat and perceived threat. So part of things like cognitive behavioral therapy for anxiety rely on the frontal lobe to help teach patients how to differentiate between things that are truly threatening and things that aren't by engaging a series of co you know, cognitive thinking processes that help people to manage unhelpful and inaccurate appraisals of a situation. So for example, teaching someone how to talk without experiencing that emotional response, training people that they can talk about this without having a visceral anxious experience. And just through the process of talking about it through habituation, you can achieve this, but you can also help people to realize that talking about death and dying are not the same thing. Right. That getting, getting an email, a hostile email from a boss is not the same as you losing a job. Giving people more space to more accurately and helpfully process things that happen to them. Right. Yeah. Well, that was exactly the question I was going to ask is that, you know, these mechanisms were all good for us when, you know, humans were just evolving because, as you said, tigers and lions might be picking us off. But now and today in, in modern society, you know, obviously death is omnipresent and, and you could be hit by a bus and, and this or that. But a lot of times there's these misfirings when it comes from, yeah, a, an aggressive email or road rage or... Or, yeah, or, some, yeah, or someone, you know, saying something on social media or getting a, a like or not getting a like. I mean, there are different ways of expressing the same underlying fears. So fear, right. fear is primordial. Fear is basic. Fear, as I've mentioned, is motivating and protective. And we need it in a certain amount. But when it gets excessive, when it starts to interfere with your functioning, when it starts to cause distress, that's really when we need to think about treatment. That's really when yeah. we need to think about intervention. So again, an inherent fear of death or an inherent preoccupation with death makes sense. But when that fear starts to, to manifest and interfere with functioning and, and cause physical and psychiatric symptoms, that's when we really need to consider what death means to you and how we can think about it in a different way um, that will make you more comfortable with that, with that possible, with that inevitability. Right, 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 right. You mentioned a few things that can help. I'd, I'd love to offer maybe some suggestions to people who find that a preoccupation with death is kind of bogging them down. One of the things you mentioned was filling your life with meaning and, and, knowing that over time your your brain sort of learns to savor but is there anything else on on top of yes uh, well the the first thing is number one as with most things is sort of auditing and asking yourself what you believe and feel about death where do you stand right and there's a continuum there's the, the people who are absolutely terrified of it and can't even think about it or talk about it and and then there are the people who embrace it and understand and accept its inevitability and there are probably three types of orientations to 
death acceptance. There's escape acceptance, which is sort of conceptualizing death as a welcome escape from the suffering and pain <laughs> of one's life. Yeah. There's approach acceptance, so accepting death due to one's belief about the existence of a desirable afterlife. And we'll talk about religion in a second because it plays a very complicated role in death anxiety. And then there's neutral acceptance, right? Accepting death as a natural part of life and something outside of one's control. So the first step is, is to just inventory kind of where you are in your beliefs about death. What does it mean to you? Where did that come from? Would you like to change that orientation? So step one is audit your attitudes and beliefs towards death. The second is to, once you've identified what that orientation is and the extent to which it impairs your functioning and your ability to do the things that you need to do is to sort of expose yourself to death. And I don't mean like, you know, go look at dead bodies, even though under some circumstances, if if someone had such a paralyzing, you know, fear of death that they couldn't function, that might be part of their fear hierarchy, which is something that we create in exposure and response prevention therapy for phobia, but exposure in other ways. So talking about it, mm -hmm. talking about it in a safe and protected space, maybe with a, a religious or spiritual guide, with a psychologist, with a social worker, with a doctor, with friends, with loved ones, really actively exploring your fear about that. The act of talking is itself an exposure. Yeah. And so mere exposure through, through talking about it, through exploring it, through philosophy and religion. Listening um, to podcasts about listen, it. <laughs> listening to podcasts about death can really itself be quite therapeutic. And it's actually very interesting because there's a, an excellent book I read called It's, it's Okay to Die. And uh, I, I recommend that very highly. It's a quick read. It's, it's simple. It's, it's well-written. But the authors of this book argue that we have gotten more sensitized to death with modernity. In other words, when people lived on farms, death was this pedestrian everyday experience. People saw animals die. Mm -hmm. When we lived in intergenerational families, so when we lived with not only our immediate family, but our grandparents, our aunts, our uncles, we saw Older people die. We saw family members die. And all of that death happened in-house, meaning we didn't have funeral homes. Yeah. We, we didn't outsource death. We didn't outsource, you know, the slaughtering of, of chickens. And we didn't outsource the, the, the process of death. It happened in your home, on your property, at a very high rate of frequency. And so you saw it all the time. And as a psychological law, the more you see something, the more you habituate to it. And so as we've modernized, as families get nuclear and smaller, as you know, agrarian lifestyles dissipate, as enterprises like undertaking increase, we have outsourced death in such a way that makes us more sensitive to it. Because That's a great, I hadn't even thought of that. Because we've, we've lost that daily interaction with death that characterized our lives, you know, a century ago, you know, not so yeah. long ago. So, so, part, so the antidote then is, is exposure. So really talking about it and getting yourself comfortable with that. 
But the biggest one really is, is cultivating a sense of meaning and purpose in your life. For many people, death is terrifying because it means finality, it means uncertainty, it means pain, it means that for some, for others, that their life's work is not complete, that they, right. they didn't do what they wanted or needed to do. And so the biggest thing is to find what is meaningful to you, find what is valuable to you, whether those are relationships or ideas or experiences, and then, you know, <laughs> liberally and promiscuously per pursue those things within reason, you know, the healthy things yeah. and imbue your life with that because those are, those are buffers. Those are buffers. And when your life is rich with meaning and purpose, when you get to the end of this thing, you say, well, you know what? I came and did what I needed to do. So a few practical things. Number one, audit where you are. What are your attitudes and beliefs towards death? Where do those come from? How do they serve you? How might they stymie you? The second is to honestly, if you feel like your preoccupation with death interferes with your functioning and causes you distress, the first step is to acknowledge and to start talking about that. Mm -hmm. And as I've mentioned, talking itself is an exposure. The more you say something, the more you think about something, the more you think about something, the less ambiguous it becomes, the less ambiguous it becomes, the less you want to avoid it. So exposure itself um, or talking itself is an exposure. The third is to cultivate sources of rich meaning and purpose, whether that's through goals or relationships. There's some other emerging research that suggests cultivating experiences with danger or having out-of-body experiences can also help to reduce death anxiety, but it's, it's a bit nuanced. So for example, there was a, a study of skydivers done. They had um, like new skydivers, so like experienced but relatively inexperienced dive, uh, skydivers, moderately experienced skydivers, and forgive me, I don't exactly know how they measured experience, <laughs> and very experienced skydivers. And the inexperienced skydivers were really afraid of dying. Okay. The moderately experienced skydivers were the least afraid of dying. And the advanced skydivers were not as afraid as the least experienced, but they were more afraid than the moderately experienced ones. Interesting so, that it's not like a stacked or... or yes. Yeah. So what we think is that, you know, it makes sense that the least experienced are the most anxious. Right. But that the ones in the middle still have their ignorance and like this excitement. It's like the sweet spot of excitement and ignorance. But the advanced ones still know enough about it that they know it's dangerous. So what that tells us is exposing yourself to certain situations may increase your openness to, to death, but only up to a certain point. Mm -hmm. um, there's also some evidence to suggest that like using hallucinogens and having these unusual out-of-body perceptual experiences can increase people's comfort with, with death. And as more research gets done on, you know, using hallucinogens and other, other things like ketamine to treat psychopathology, we'll understand a bit more about the, the role of, of certain drugs in, in decreasing people's anxiety about death. Interesting. Going back to the sky uh, divers for a second, it's almost like in the beginning, you're terrified 
in the middle, you're, you know, you feel comfortable. And so that lessens it. And it's almost like when you pass to that top level, you may be like recruiting new people or teaching them new people how to do it. And it's like, you see it again, right? You've got yep. so good that now that when you're trying to pass it to someone else, you're like, oh gosh, I got to tell you this based on no research, but I, I <laughs> other than a yeah. guess. Yeah. And I think that research shows that simply risking death isn't it's sufficient to decrease your fear of it, but that there may be some kind of like learning curve, you know, where right. getting some experience makes you feel less anxious because you gain a, a sense of control, but getting a lot of experience makes you more aware that you can't cheat death. Right. So, and going back to the exposure thing, there was another, another study that kind of demonstrated slightly not it was significant but it was mild a, 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 a small correlation that there was a mild negative correlation between number of funerals attended and done among you know funeral funeral directors and fear of death so that it's just a correlation it's a basic association uh, doesn't mean it's causally related but it does support this hypothesis that that mere that exposure both through talking but also you know physically interacting with death can decrease your anxieties surrounding it but like i've said there are several factors that may contribute to fear of anxiety i think we've talked about age fairly extensively Another obvious one is physical health. And generally, the more physically unhealthy you are, the more you tend to fear death, in part because with physical health conditions, people tend to feel more preoccupied about dying prematurely or dying in a way that's very physically traumatizing or painful. Religion plays an interesting role role. There's evidence to support both sides of this. There's evidence to support that highly religious people can fear death more or they can fear death less. Mm -hmm. So, but we think that being moderately religious might be the worst. So in other words, you don't have the, the comfort of knowing that there's an afterlife but you're not as chill as non-believers, <laughs> right? <laughs> so that is a little bit more nuanced and complicated that there's evidence to support that both high and low religiosity can have associations with death anxiety, but being moderately religious may be the worst because you don't have the, the comfort of an afterlife and you don't have as much yeah, chill as as not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that word aptly describes what you what you're attempting uh, to get across. Yeah. Yeah, and then you know, in terms of other predictors of fear, anxiety, uh, level of meaning and purpose in your life, right? So how how rich do you do you do you feel your life is and that you are living? How richly, I should say, do you feel you're, you're living your life and how rich is it? But then there are also sex and gender differences. So on average, again, right, individual differences, people are highly, highly variable. But on average, what would you guess, Patrick, are men or women more or less um, fearful of death? Well, uh, you know, I feel like I can get in trouble with either answer. <laughs> no, uh, no, no but trouble. My, no my guess would be women would be more yes. fearful. 
Yes, yes. Women tend to be be more fearful on average, but again, there are significant individual differences. And I think this makes sense. From an evolutionary perspective, the, the cost of death for women is much higher, especially right. if they have offspring. But there are also social components to this, right? We are socialized in very different ways. So much so, right, that men, <laughs> you know, are, you know, historically, <laughs> right, they, they were the ones recruited for war, not for women. Yeah. We, in many ways, uh, this might get a little political, but in many ways, we see men as more expendable. And we have certain institutional, societal, and cultural practices that embody that. We're much more about sending men off to war. Right. Right. Than we are with women. And in fact, we didn't even let women do that until relatively recently. We're much less surprised when a man dies in an automobile accident. They tend to die more frequently, you know, than than women anyway. We're much more comfortable with seeing a man who is homeless than a woman. I think there are certain differences uh, socially and culturally also that, that play into this. But yes, in general, women tend to fear death a bit more than their male counterparts for fairly clear and obvious evolutionary reasons. Right. Do you think then, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, you know, women definitely have, the, the cost is certainly higher. So is that pre-programmed for them to be a bit more cautious, do you think? Yes, but cautiousness and fear don't always have to be the same thing. Again, it goes back to what do we say when we mean fear versus awareness, you know, versus cautiousness. Fear, it means a very specific thing. It means that it's an incredibly activating experience that you make perhaps unreasonable efforts to avoid, and Mm -hmm. that avoidance can cause impairment and distress in your life. So you can be cautious and aware without feeling fear. They're related, right? right? And, but it's, right. It's, it's a question of amount of, of, of threshold. Excessive awareness, excessive preoccupation, uh, excessive caution, that can, can merge into or bleed into fear. Mm-hmm. But so even though I think women may have the, the evolutionary and, and biological equipment to proceed a bit more tentatively and cautiously, doesn't necessarily have to translate to excessive fear of death. Okay, got it. Well, this has been incredible. Uh, I wanna be conscious of your time. You only have about 10 minutes before you mentioned you have another appointment. Is there anything else that you think we should talk about? Yes, so I think that there are really important clinical implications to death anxiety. And in fact, there's a movement in clinical psychology to start assessing death anxiety a bit more explicitly because we believe that it undergirds and underpins several clinical presentations, including but not limited to somatoform disorders, uh, panic disorder, phobia, and depression. And the research evidence pretty clearly supports that, that that death anxiety appears to live at the core of a range of psychiatric issues. And I, I... That makes sense. I mean, so just Mm -hmm. from a diagnostic perspective, death comes out as a criterion in in many disorders, right? So for example, one thing that I, I assess for when I'm trying to assess for panic disorder is, well, when you're having these episodes, do you feel like you're about to die? Yeah. When I'm assessing for depression, do you feel preoccupied with death, right? When we are assessing for 
phobia or obsessive compulsive disorder, right? What would it mean if you didn't avoid the spider? What would it mean if you didn't engage in the compulsive hand washing? Oh, well, that I would contract an illness and that I would die, mm-hmm. right? So death really plays out in many different ways clinically. Mm-hmm. And knowing the extent to which someone fears death may predict the severity of that presentation and may also have implications for how we go about treating it. So in, addition, it. so in addition to, you know, your traditional cognitive behavioral protocols for obsessive compulsive disorder, for major depressive disorder, for anxiety disorder, well, maybe we actually need to build in a module that explicitly addresses death. And it's interesting because even though I see that have seen thousands of patients with, you know, some combination of depression, anxiety, OCD, panic, somatoform disorder, how many times have I explicitly addressed death anxiety with those patients? Well, very seldom, unless the presentation is grief or end of life care. So what that points to is not only the necessity of perhaps building in death processing as part of evidence-based treatment, it also points to the extent to which clinicians and doctors themselves fear death and perpetuate that death in the silence. Wow. In the oh silence. My goodness. Right? Yeah. So we're not even talking about it. It's kind of like sex. Sex and death, doctors don't do well discussing. <laughs> yeah. Because they're so they contain multitudes, right? And when you've got eight minutes to see a patient, well, Jesus, how do you unpack death? And You can't, you really no, can't. Right. But I think it's also a symptom of how we ourselves as doctors avoid the very thing that may be fueling much of the psychopathology that we see. Last thing I'll say is, so in addition to the research that demonstrates death anxiety likely undergirds a catalog of clinical presentations, a recent study has demonstrated that fear of death can actually prolong our grief. So in other words, those who fear death tend to experience longer and more intense periods of, of grief than their death accepting counterparts. And this has implications for not only every single human being on the earth, because we all will experience death, but it especially has implications for healthcare workers who may have daily interactions with death, for example, with patients. So all this to say, generally speaking, avoiding and fearing death works very much against us. Mm-hmm. But we are designed simultaneously to self-preserve, to prevent death, but to also deny it because of its gravity. Mm-hmm. And so part of the work culturally, socially, individually is to identify your relationship with death and work with it rather than against it because in working against it you not only exacerbate the fear you stymie your life energy yeah seems like it's it's like the instructions with how to handle a riptide you know you're you're not going to be able to swim against it you have to acknowledge where you are and what's happening and take evasive maneuvers by swimming parallel. Well, yes, beautifully said. And it's actually a concept I teach patients in dialectical behavioral therapy or DBT, and that's called urge surfing. (laughs) And it's this idea that lifeguards are trained to 
let the tide take them in, not to swim against, because if you swim against, you will exhaust yourself and you will drown. Right. And so let's stop trying to avoid and let's, let's ride the wave. That's much, much easier said than done. Of course. But the first step is to ask yourself where you are in your relationship with death to identify and acknowledge, and then to make a decision to, to change your relationship with it, because there's nothing, there's nothing inevitable about your relationship with death. Death itself is inevitable. Your relationship with it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be unchangeable and inevitable and predetermined. It is something that you can, can and should think about daily and work towards elasticizing. Yeah. And, you know, our time on, on earth is so short and there's enough to be stressed about why live with this anchor on your shoulders when it doesn't have to be there. Yeah. And uh, it doesn't have to be. Again, we want a certain amount of it because mm-hmm. that is adaptive and helpful and can motivate living a rich and beautiful life. Too much of it can starve us of life. Well said. Well, you've given me and and the listeners an incredible amount of information to digest and and think about. You mentioned you are thinking about writing a book, but I'm assuming you don't have anything to mention here. Otherwise, you know, I'd love to hear what that (laughs) is going to be about or how else can people or listeners connect with you. Yeah. So stay tuned for the book. My agent (laughs) is probably so upset with me because I'm so behind on my proposal, (laughs) but that is not coming out anytime soon, but it is in the works and that will explore millennials thoughts on age and aging. I, I have a blog on psychology today called engaging where I translate uh, my and others' research on age and aging across different domains of, of health, whether that's sleep health, sexual health, physical health, psychological health. So people can certainly find me there on across my various social media platforms, which include you know Twitter and, and Instagram. You can find me at The Age Ambassador, where I continue my discussions about age and aging and using evidence-based science to optimize that process. That's great. Thank you so much for all this. Yeah, best of luck and we'll be talking soon. Sounds good, Patrick. Thanks so much. You got it.